This is Via Con Munoz with Natalia Munoz on 96.9 WHMP. Hi, Larry. Good morning, Natalia. We're now at part on part two, talking about filmmaking. The, in, filmmaking in the, in the age of Trump. In the age of Trump. This is part two. Part one was last week. It's available online as a podcast. Um, what else do we have to worry about, Larry? <laughs> One of the things I've noticed is that there is a lot of tension, not only in the filmmaking community, but among the funders. And recently, the International Documentary Association has scored a $5 million grant uh, from the MacArthur Foundation, spread out over five years. That's a million dollars a year. And they're going to be giving away $100,000 for production and $15,000 for development. What that means is development is to help get a project started. Now, that sounds great. It sounds like a lot of money, but the reality is you cannot make a living on $15,000 for development, which could take you, say, a year or two to do the work, and then $100,000 might be probably a fifth of the budget or a sixth of the budget. So you still have to get the other money. Now, it's good leverage money, but what it's, what it's saying is that there's a crisis out there, and I'm beginning to wonder about what do I tell my students who always, you know, they come in with two questions. They want to know how they can make a professional-looking film, and they always, of course, want to know where do you get the money to do this. And I look around and I see some people who are working in companies that have television contracts. And frequently they come in very idealistic and they want to make uh, documentaries, the PBS-style documentaries, and they have skills in filmmaking and they go into reality television or they go into news production. And one of the more, not to say lucrative, but one of the places where jobs occasionally open up is in the uh, one-man band journalism, where you write the article, you take the photographs, and you make the video all at the same time. There's a good example of that. Um, Jeremy, oh my goodness, he was a, he filmed in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. He has a documentary out. Um, about the war in Afghanistan. I well, you Scahill, see, you see Jeremy Scahill mm-hmm. is a one-man band. Yeah, I, I, I expect that the woman who made uh, 4.1 Miles, which was nominated for an Academy Award this year... About she, the refugees. Right, about the, she, uh, she was on assignment and she made the documentary about it. Um, and you see some people doing virtual reality for the New York Times and there's a big company that, that does that. But the, really the, the question is, is this sustainable? And I think we mentioned this last week, this idea of sustainability in agriculture. Now we have this idea of sustainability in film. But we also have another problem. It's kind of the embarrassment of riches. And there's a lot of irony in this. The equipment has come down in cost for entry-level equipment. Not the, I mean, you can still spend $90,000 on a lens you know, any day. You can have a $500,000 worth of equipment could also have no talent and have all that equipment so you know you, you you know you can make a great film with an iPhone so it's really not the cost of the equipment anymore but there's a backlog of films so people frequently will start a film and they'll say you know I think my film is perfect for independent lens or POV on public television you know these are the place where they sell where they uh, where they show the more personal and more political films well the reality is that there's only about 13 slots in a year for each of those films, and independent lens and POV get about between 500 and 1,000 films for those 13 slots. And then they pay a little something for that, but probably not enough to cover your expenses anyway. So people and will spend 
a lifetime making these films. And then there'll be five, six months, or even a year waiting to hear whether the film's been accepted. And they can't show the film anywhere else while they're waiting to see whether the film's been accepted. Last week we spoke about a film that you did. A, a, was it a two-parter on tuberculosis? Yes, it's about 20 years. And it took, it took several years to get funding for it. It took eight years. And I wonder, had... And I wonder about I wonder uh, about the filmmakers who do not get funding. How all those stories then disappear? Well, once in a while, you hear about filmmakers who have decided to mortgage their homes. Uh, this is not a good idea <laughs> for obvious reasons. Uh, it's rare that anybody can ever make make back the money. Uh, and films, documentary films, particularly, also most feature films, don't make money. And actually, if you're thinking, you know, I'm not interested in in documentary films. I want to hear more about that. <clears throat> the Hollywood style movies, Sundance, for example, which is a you know famous f- festival. Robert Redford founded this festival in Utah, and that's where the, a lot of distributors go to look at the independent features. Only about three or four of those every year get a distribution deal. Thousands, literally thousands, are submitted of feature films, two-hour feature films, and then they only show say thirty, forty films at the festival entirely. So, do the math. The odds are against you. Is this the way it's always been, or is, it, is, is this a growing problem? No, it used to be much worse, actually, because uh, before you had the Hollywood studio system, so breaking into that was almost impossible, and if you wanted to make any television at all, or movies at all, you had to be in Hollywood for television in New York. I mean, Hollywood for the movies in New York for television, or, or a mixture of both. Now there are a lot more venues out there. So really, it's not a question of whether you can make a film anymore. And it's not even a question of whether you can get it shown or seen someplace. It's really a question whether it's a viable lifestyle. And that is the freedom of speech issue. It's not that somebody's going to stop you from making the film, but it's whether there's going to be any audience for it, whether there's any way you can sustain a lifestyle making those films, and then you might make one and then never make another one. And I don't think this is really good for our artistic community. I don't think it's really good for our body politic if we're not going to have this kind of information. And the reality is most people aren't reading as much, uh, getting their news in, in short bursts, either on television or, th- or through the web. And the films are one way to get information, and particularly history, in front of people so they're better informed. And we're losing a class of people who have the talent to do this if there's not enough money to pay them adequately. I see a lot on social media one-minute films yeah. uh, with w- that are also subtitled. It's a different. It's, it's a different genre. Right. Where the subtitles are highlighted. Well, this and that's not. Those are wonderful, and they are more akin to photography, something that's very short or short burst. And there is a there is an analogy to photography as well. Um, it used you know before, uh, photography was not considered uh, a real art, and then it, it it's over the last 30, 40 years, it's ri- it's risen in, in uh, appreciation and value, but still. Every, certainly, I would say almost without exception, everybody in this country has a camera, right? But is everybody an artist? And how many people can make a living as photographers? And there's only so many teaching positions for photographers and filmmakers. So the, you know, the real question is, how much, does the value, how much does society value these people? And how much do we value talent and nurturing that talent in the United States? It's so ironic because on one hand, yes, you can access the equipment more easily. Like you said earlier, you can use a, an iPhone or another smartphone, make a film. Este, but you can't live off that. No. You can't, you can't pay your rent or your mortgage or buy food 
este, well, one, eso, of the one of the models for a lot of people is to do a lot of commercial work if they can get it. You have to be talented in order to do that. So you might do weddings and bar mitzvahs, and you might do real commercials, and you might do promotional films, and you do what we call industrials. Um, and then if you have any energy <laughs> left in the day, you might be able to pull off that dream project you've been working on. I just can't imagine somebody, say, working at a, a fast food place, which has more, offers you more flexibility mm -hmm. uh, to work on a, on, a, on a passion project. I can't imagine somebody juggling that for a long period of time. Well, you see, I think the uh, analogy to the actors who uh, in New York and Hollywood are working in restaurants for quite a bit of time waiting for their big break, uh, you see filmmakers doing that as well. And, and I don't think anybody's crying crocodile tears for them. But if the chances, the odds of ever getting any more money are going down, 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 that means that the viewing public is going to see less of the kind of work that we used to. And when we talk about freedom of speech, when we talk about our, our First Amendment, there's a real danger there that if people can't showcase these stories, these investigative pieces that the cable is not covering because they're too busy uh, trying to be entertaining. And right, and if you've been to a film festival, uh, except for the very big ones, the audiences are somewhere between, a two, say, 25 to 200 people. Right. That's that's really not enough. <laughs> Even if they get energized, uh, it's not enough to, you know, to affect uh, any social change. I it, how how sad that it, we we have all these tools that are, you know, right there at our fingertips to be more informed. And as people are less informed. Well, there is a certain irony in, in that we could also we have that equipment and we have the people who are the interest in doing it. But we don't have a society that really values it enough to make it part of our, uh, an official part of our economy. So tell us the nightmare. If you take this, what, if we take what we're talking about to its este, natural uh, development, no? it's the end game. What does this mean then for filmmakers 5, 10, 15 years from now if we have funders who are worried, who are, este, we have filmmakers who cannot live off their vocation? What does that mean? I think it'll be similar to, to writing. And you'll have people who are doing this for the love of doing it, and they will be getting it out to small audiences, and probably the length will change. Uh, and you talked about one-minute movies. We'll probably have a lot more short movies. There are some documentary funds out there. Uh, that There's one called uh, Chicken and Egg, and they are funding uh, rapid-response films where they're putting up $10,000, $25,000, whatever, for short films that can be turned around quickly. Uh, there are some funds that are giving... Uh, there's one that's giving uh, money to support people's lives and not their films. Um, I read about one where five women a year will get $50,000. Uh, maybe enough to live on, I guess, if particularly if it's combined with somebody else. Um, and that, I think, is a really good way to do, to do it. Although, think about that. How many hundreds of thousands of people are out there and, and five are getting it? But it's better than nothing. And maybe that, maybe that opportunity will grow. I would, and one thing we didn't talk about was Kickstarter and other crowdfunding sources. Um, I think this is great. It's saving a lot of people. What it doesn't, it doesn't provide uh, a continual salary for somebody. And it's project-based. But what it's doing is it's saving filmmakers from being unable to finish a project. So if they have something that is worthy, right away people want to support it for development, and then it gives them, uh, if they've been able to produce something that can be seen, and people can see the quality of it, then they can fundraise through something like Kickstarter or Indiegogo and get enough money to finish it. And that means that their time, their several years 
working on that film are not wasted. So this has been a big benefit. This is one of the positive things that's happened in the last few years. I agree with you to a certain extent, but the thing about these uh, fundraising tools is that you have to know people who have money that then would fund you. Yeah, the one time I did a Kickstarter campaign, uh, I had to hire a consultant to get started to understand it, and I had 3,000 people, 3,000 names in my database, uh, and a lot of them were people who had some sources, resources. Plus, you're an Emmy-winning filmmaker. Uh, you, you are renowned in I had a field. track record, right. You have a solid track record, but for a new filmmaker, that's where I, I share your concern that filmmaking yeah. is But the trick is, the trick is for those new filmmakers is that they don't make the film based on their reputation. They make the film based on the subject matter, and then they find the people who have an interest in that subject matter. So don't give up. So don't know. Don't give up hope and figure out how to, how to do it. Uh, the question is, I think, I guess if you really have talent, that will out. This is Faya Con Munoz with Natalia Munoz on 